I am Nemi and I'm Ritu from Adventurize this is Venturing Beyond a podcast where we delve into the career stories of ambitious individuals Today we have with us Steven Turbin an organizational researcher and PhD student at Harvard Business School he is a co-founder of Lumiere Education a social enterprise focused on research based learning he's also a writer on business and organizational design whose work has appeared in the economist free economics radio npr harvard business review bbc business review and so on welcome steven it's brilliant to have you here how are you Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for for the conversation and uh yeah, I think it'll be fun. Fantastic. Um to start off, like I heard that you're fluent in Mandarin and Vietnamese, right? I'm also like curious about languages, so I'd love to know what drove that interest of yours. Yeah, I you know, I I have a big love for languages. I would say languages are one of the most important things that I do in my life um I started getting into languages because I was a, I was a really bad student in uh in high school just like actually just pretty mediocre and the thing that changed that for me was getting really interested in Spanish which was my first language that wasn't English that that I learned and uh I just had such a good time I I spent a couple of summers living with those families in uh Costa Rica and Guatemala and it just really changed it made me feel like oh I could be good at something and uh and then i uh went on i was an exchange student in taiwan where i went to a public school in which the curriculum was taught in in mandarin um and so i spent a lot of time studying chinese after that and then after i graduated from college i went to vietnam to study vietnamese because that would be fun and just really fell in love with the language there which was which was great and uh now i am just scraping by with some hindi which is uh, embarrassing but uh hopefully we'll get better over time but uh yeah i love languages and i think they're a they're in my mind like an they're kind of like a video game and they're quite addictive they're one of the few things i experience in which i feel measurable progress over time and i can see myself growing and improving and it unlocks new uh, new parts of life hello i'm nimi i hope you've enjoyed listening to our conversations with these amazing people on our podcast venturing beyond 9 to 5 has been nominated for the best educational podcast in hubhopper studio podcast awards 2021 Please help us out by following the link in our description and voting for Venturing Beyond 95. Thank you. So, while you were stepping into internet stardom on the side, you're also like chasing a PhD degree at Harvard. Um I know you worked for a bit in data science and analytics at a few company including McKinsey. Um what made you decide to shift your focus towards academia? Yeah, it's a good question and and in fact uh it's it, it, the reality is that it actually goes the other way that I had already decided that I wanted to go into academia and do a PhD and as a result I decided to work at a place like McKinsey. So essentially when I graduated I had this uh amazing mentor this guy David Garvin who is a professor at HBS who I met as an undergrad and uh just a really He's a really good guy and he he kind of took me under as a as a mentor became kind of a a father figure for me and when I was in my senior year I I just wanted to be like him to be honest he's just this I want yeah I just wanted to be like him and so I was like okay I want to do and um do a PhD I want to hopefully it's, it's back at HBS I know I don't know if I would get in and uh I asked David I was like hey I'm thinking about 
uh, doing a PhD, should I do it? And he gave me this advice I thought that was really um, useful. And he said, well, if you're going to study organizations, which is what I want to study, wouldn't it be better for you to spend some time working in one uh, first? And I thought that was like, well, that's a really uh, thoughtful way to think about it. And so what I did as a result was I decided to structure my life post-grad into two semesters. One semester would be focused on a large in a large multinational company in which I would get to experience what it's like to be in a big corporation that you know is at the top of their game. Like a McKinsey was a great, so I, I um, picked to work at McKinsey and was able to, to get in because you know this is a company that serves big companies, like this meta big company. But then I also wanted to work in a small startup and see what that was like. And so then I shifted to Vietnam and worked in this startup university, Fulbright University, and got to see what it's like to be at the beginnings of something. And um, throughout that time, I knew I was gonna apply to a PhD program and eventually applied and, and um, was lucky enough to, to get in. And, but it, it, it was very clear that I had these two semesters in my mind. So I even like quit McKinsey because I knew that I didn't have much time to get to my second semester. So I needed to leave in order to um, uh, graduate and in fact, to, to the next semester that in my life. So that's how I thought about it, yeah. <laughs> Got it. Organizational behavior was something that you were interested in at the same time. How did you like figure that out? What made you interested in organizational design? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, there's so much that's, there's so much that's out of, out of one control, I think. Why am I interested in it? I mean, the reality is that I'm probably interested in it because my dad's a professor at a business school. And so he, I just talked to him a ton about it. And I, found it interesting. Uh, but I think that it'd be a bit of, and, and of course I had great mentors like, like David, who I mentioned, my dad's an amazing mentor as well. Uh, and, but I think I just found them interesting. I think that uh, I was always curious about how organizations worked, how you could structure teams, how you could create something out of nothing. I was very interested in entrepreneurship, how, to, how do entrepreneurs create something new, um, especially when they themselves might be new to that environment, like as, as an immigrant. Uh, but when I was in undergrad, I, I kind of thought about my time there as I'm, I'm going to do something that I will probably not have time ever again to do. So I should try to pick something that's going to uh, force me to think in a way that I wouldn't naturally think. And um, I, I've, I always like numbers, but statistics was something that I just thought of as so foundational to the world around us. How do you think about distributions? How do you think about uh, using data? AI is just, you know, in a way applied statistics, you know, so from a statistician's perspective. And so that's why I decided to study stat as an undergrad. And I thought, oh, you know, the best, the worst case scenario is that I'd study stat and then I go do a PhD in something else. And I'm just, you know, better at stat because I spent, you know, 10X the amount of time that other people did at it, uh, which, yeah. And not because I'm particularly good at it, but because it was interesting. And I honestly, now I love statistics. I think it's just like, I wish it was I wish everyone like threw out calculus from your curriculums and put in statistics because it's so much more valuable and it's much more useful framework um, for people to think about the world, I think. So. Mm -hmm. If you're comfortable sharing, um, I, I'm curious about what kind of topics and projects you do in your PhD. Totally. Yeah. And, and then like a disclaimer here is that I've currently taken a leave of absence from my PhD uh, in order to work full time on uh, my startup Lumiere, which is a ton of fun and, you know, it's actually very connected to the research topics I'm interested in. So, so some of the topics I'm interested in, probably in two big buckets. One bucket is I'm interested in space and networks. So I did this really fun project with a, um, a professor mentor of my HBS, Ethan Bernstein, who's this like superstar. And uh, we looked at the transition to the open office 
at um, using sensors to track people's communication patterns. And I really love that type of uh, research setting, which is about very rigorous data collection. In this mm -hmm. case, we're using these sensors to collect who is speaking with who on an interesting real life question, which is actually now irrelevant in the world of COVID, but at the time was quite interesting of like, should you work in an open office? Now I'm like, okay, just go be remote first, it's way easier, but um, <laughs> that, was, that was the question at the time. Um, the other thing I look at is, and this is super early, mm -hmm. uh, but it's an area of interest for me is around immigrant entrepreneurs. So I'm really interested in how, I'm interested in entrepreneurship, but I'm also interested in how people who are new to an environment could uh, create something new. And so, I mean, Indians are a great example. Like there's so many amazing Indian entrepreneurs who are making companies outside of India, which is like kind of a, in a way, I think pretty, pretty weird. That, that's like kind of weird that that happens. It's not intuitive to me that an immigrant would have higher likelihood to create a company than a native person. But actually that, that tends to be true in places like the United States. And actually the opposite is true as well. You know, it's not, people think about immigrants being people moving to uh, places of higher wealth, but you could also think about uh, people moving to emerging markets, um, but like expat or migrant worker entrepreneurs, you see all, the, all over the place, like in, in Africa or in Southeast Asia. So that's also an example of a, of a foreign entrepreneur in a new market. It's not the story we often think about when we think about an immigrant, but it certainly is a, another one that I'm particularly interested in. Going back a little bit, I, I'm curious, like just for people who might be interested in going into academia and um, taking a PhD, what, uh, what would someone need to know in order to choose between going for like an industry job versus academia? Have you maybe heard about any interesting motivations that people have had before going in for a PhD? Yeah, totally. And in fact, um, plug on this, uh, my friends and I, Megan um, Gorgeous and myself wrote this guide on how to apply to business school PhDs, which you can look up, um, which is like this 50 page document in which we interviewed a bunch of recent um, well, we collected data from people who had gotten into top business school PhD programs. But I think in that we also talk about what is a PhD? How is it different from say an industry job, particularly in our cases is business school PhDs, but I think there's some, uh, some uh, ways that you could abstract that away and other people could take from it. I mean, I think the core thing to think about is, and it really depends as well, honestly, on the field. I, I won't say too much here, uh, but, if you want to do a PhD, you have to want to do research and enjoy creating uh, knowledge as opposed to consuming knowledge. And so a lot of people, I think, enjoy consuming knowledge. Like I certainly love consuming knowledge, but you're not actually doing that in a PhD. You're actually the one who's creating the knowledge, which is much more tedious, much more painful. Uh, and so if you think that's super cool and you're willing to uh, sacrifice on some things like uh, compensation or flexibility of location, uh, in return for higher autonomy and intellectual freedom and curiosity, if you are successful in that process. And I think it's a great thing to do. But you have to be aware of the, um, the trade-offs. I think that there's, particularly people who enter into PhDs, and one of the issues I think about the, sh the structure of, of academia is that as an uh, undergrad, you, you, you tend to look to the people around you as mentors, and the people who are your mentors are generally tenure professors, right? They're people who have, who have gone through academia and then were successful in it. And so in statistics, this would be called sampling. It's a, a biased sample because you're sampling on a success, essentially. And so then, of course, you're going to get people who are saying like, hey, it's a great path, do it. 
And so you have a lot of people enter PhDs, I think for the wrong reasons, because they frankly, they, they sampled incorrectly. They sampled on, um, on, uh, on, a, on a group that, that was really lucky, frankly, and is not necessarily representative of the whole uh, of people. So that's an issue, I think, of doing a PhD. I, mean, I, I would be hesitant to encourage most people to do a PhD unless they're very clear about what they want. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I actually um, read a book recently which talked about how uh, no everybody looks at the successful people and not many people know about the graveyard behind that, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's you see it all the time. Like yeah, absolutely. It's like I think it's that's why statistics would be such an amazing for everyone to have to learn because you, it's even thinking about how do I learn because like if you just look at success stories and you're saying oh all these successful people are I mean, an example would be like, I could say all the successful people in India are Indian. Yeah, but most people in India are Indian, you know? So it's like not that interesting of a statement, right? It doesn't really say anything about me who's not Indian in India. Um, so what you sample on is a huge impact on how you understand uh, whether or not something is true or not. So, no. Definitely cool. <laughs> um, what would a typical day in the life of a business PhD student be like? Yeah, yeah, it's a raging inferno. Um, <laughs> no, it's, so it depends where you are in the PhD. Uh, if you're in the first two years, you're going to be mixing your time between probably 60, 70% in coursework, uh, where you're taking classes, you're trying to learn. These courses could both be content focused, like if you're doing organizational behavior, it might be how do you organizations structure themselves or how do people motivate themselves? It's more micro or how do you think about uh, why do we even have businesses? What are businesses? Stuff, stuff like that. And then you spend about 30, 40% of your time on the research itself, which might be you know doing anything from data cleaning to writing to looking up example papers. Uh, so a lot of, of, of uh, individual work. And as you get along your PhD, let's say year three, year four, I'm talking about in the US, then your that time of coursework to research ratio goes from like, let's say 6% coursework, 40% research to like 95.5, where you're pretty much spending all of your time um, doing research. And that's the thing that you're, you're assessed on. Ultimately, you're essentially in a trade school where the trade is creating new knowledge and packaging it in a research paper. So, you know, that's, that's what you need to do. And over the course of five years, you need to produce one to three of these products, which are these papers, and the whole PhD is about training you and giving you time to do that. That's that's what a PhD is, uh, especially a business school PhD. Cool. Um, what, are the, what are some of the misconceptions that, that you've noticed people have before going into a PhD or research, or just like the academic world? Yeah, I think a misconception people have is the what it takes to get in to a PhD program, it's a very opaque process. You know, in, like in academic, you might call it uh, information asymmetry, where the people making decisions know this, and some insiders know exactly what you need to, in order to get into a PhD program. And then there are a bunch of outsiders who are applying and are getting rejected, and they have no idea why they're getting rejected. They probably think, oh, I'm getting rejected because my GRE score isn't high enough, but in fact, your GRE score is, uh, for most PhDs, just a hygiene factor. It's essentially saying, like, are you, are you essentially not an idiot? But like, okay, that's not proving that much to me. A lot of people are not idiots. Um, so, so, so that's a big deal. I mean, and the, the kind of the punchline is that what really matters is your research experience and all of the other things that matter in other applications of your life, you know, like 
know, leadership or uh, getting great grades, like all that stuff is just not nearly as important as doing research and showing that you're committed to a research career. Uh, so I think that's a big misconception that I see for people who are thinking about doing a PhD. They just don't really understand what, how are decisions being made and why am I not getting accepted to these programs? Uh, yeah. Do you know of any other resources that people could use to prepare for the PhD? If they want to. Yeah, I think what, what I would suggest is because there's so much information asymmetry here, the amount of information you're going to learn online is exists. And you should definitely learn it, but you will get the most textured data about like, what is this like when people who are, who are actually doing it? And so I'd really encourage people to reach out to current PhD students. I have a ton of people who have reached out to me recently, which I'm super stoked about, about talking about my PhD journey, what it's like. And that I think is going to give you the best information. Do your base homework, you know, read, read this guide, for example. Uh, read other online materials that you can find, go on to forums and ask questions. But if you really want to you know, get into the weeds, uh, then try to uh, try to talk to people. I will say if you are from a underrepresented group as well, there's a lot of, of uh, programs that are pro bono to help out bringing more people into, uh, into academia because there's, there's a real pipeline issue. So these programs are all about equalizing that such that there's more qualified candidates who are applying to PhD programs. So I really encourage looking at those. And if you are one of those groups, then uh, then looking to see if you can get, get into them as well. Thank you. Um, so you decided to take a break from your PhD program to work on Lumiere education. Um, I'm curious to hear about what problem you're trying to solve and what you've been doing so far. Yeah, so, so Lumiere is a social enterprise focused on making high quality research opportunities available for students all over the world. Essentially, the idea comes about because I talked about my mentor, David, at the beginning, um, but my, my co-founder and I, Druva, who is my classmate at Harvard, we actually met doing a research program at HBS. This is an incredible program where uh, we work with a research mentor, a professor, uh, and, and some grad students. And I worked with this amazing uh, faculty member, Teresa Mabale, who's just like such a legend. I could talk about her all day. I also met uh, this mentor, David Garvin, who became early important and uh, mentor in my life and it, it that for both of us really changed our lives for me it made me really clear that i wanted to do research and it was only when i was going into my junior year of college that i got exposed to that and as a kid i grew up in and out of uh the u.s for my dad's professor but then also bounced around asia as a kid so i lived in singapore high school in taiwan like i mentioned lived in hong kong and, uh, and I just saw that there was a big gap in terms of opportunities to get access to research. Whereas in the US, it's usually through an informal network where you say, hey, you know, you talk to your, your mom who has a friend who's a faculty member and they, they introduce you to someone. That's how it works in the US, primarily for people to get research opportunities, but it just doesn't work. There's not that access in the rest of, of the world and even frankly in many parts of the United States as well. And so the whole idea of Lumiere is about providing these research opportunities for students. Um, we structured a social enterprise because we want it to be sustainable. We want it to grow naturally. And we also want to compensate research mentors who are primarily PhD students such that they are excited and, and uh, their time is valued because frankly, um, universities tend to systematically exploit um, doctoral students uh, as, as labor pools because they're promising this, you know, if you, if you do this, if you work with us for five years, you'll get a PhD and you'll get this awesome you know, job, which is honestly a promise that's um, unfulfilled 
So it's important as well that we're providing opportunities for employment as well for, for PhD students uh, in the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, that's uh, such an important mission as well. I've heard a few stories from, you know, while I was studying in Boston as well. Yeah, um, I saw that article of yours about um, your interest in being a social uh, influencer in China. Um, what's all that about? <laughs> yeah, I thought that I, I've always been interested in social media. I think social media is interesting and fun. And I thought during my senior year, you know, I was incredibly bored. I had a job offer and I was like, what could I do that would be really interesting? And I think being a Chinese speaker, which is kind of, it's not so niche. There are actually a lot of uh, non-Chinese people who speak Chinese, but it's certainly somewhat niche. Um, I thought, you know, there might be a market for, for me just doing silly stuff on social media. And so I uh, enlisted a few of my friends who were at Harvard, where I was as an undergrad, and uh, they were social media influencers themselves. And so I asked them to kind of like train me as like their, uh, you know, as their apprentice, if you will. It's quite funny because our, our, our like, you know, USB is very different. These are all like very cute, like Chinese women. And I'm like this, like kind of like very different vibe in terms of, you know, like what <laughs> the target audience is. Um, certainly, I don't think people were looking at me for my pictures. Um, but it was really fun. And I, uh, I yeah, it, 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 you know, the, the punchline is that I didn't, you know, become massive, but I had these two kind of waves of social media stardom, which were fun and interesting. And I got censored by the Weibo and indirectly the Chinese government as a result. And so, yeah, it was great. I had a great time. Highly recommend. But that must have been like a really interesting journey. Like uh, what kind of, what did you learn from that experience? Well, I think what I learned was how, so it, it, the journey actually happened in two ways. So first wave was I, um, I was just in college and I was doing a bunch of social media stuff. And then uh, that was like, yeah, that was fine. I think I got to like 10,000 followers or something. And then the second wave was after I was working for McKinsey after I graduated and I moved to the China office and I moved in, in fact, with a uh, this Israeli social media influencer who's huge in China. He has like collectively like probably six to seven million followers. He's quite big. And um, just uh, now he's like a brother to me. I love this guy Raz. And uh, so I spent a lot of time with him and other influencers in China. And I just realized that honestly, their lives are so unglamorous. And you know, it's like, it's, it, it's cool to leverage that influence that you have via social media. But it wasn't something I found like really, uh, like I, I, I found it more painful than I found it fun. And which I would just, which is a good thing to learn about myself. I certainly would not be like a good looking Chinese woman, but um, could, I could find a niche for myself. But I, I think I realized like, you know, actually the, there's so much of when you dive into someone's life behind the scenes, how just everyone's life is so normal. And really the question is not, what is the glamor? What is that? Don't be, don't pick the thing that's, uh, sparkling be like a sparkly uh, person and so that was the that was an important lesson for me but yeah. it was certainly quite a fun one as a final question uh, do you have any recommendations for the listeners um, it can be about you know going into academia or about organizational design or um, uh, statistics or even like becoming a social media influencer um, what what are some of the books or movies that stand out to you from your memory? So I would say the two books that have had probably the biggest impact on how I think about the world 
uh, one is kind of boring, but very nice, uh, is, well, well, this one's not boring, it's Give and Take by Adam Grant, amazing book, um, which I think is a very thoughtful example of how uh, social science can help change how we think about ourselves and also have a real positive impact in the world. I think it talks about how your reciprocity styles influences your long-term success, which I think is a great, great book and a really powerful message. The other thing I would suggest is for everyone to uh, take STAT 110, which is a, uh, the intro to probability at Harvard, taught by my thesis advisor, Joe Blitzstein, who's a legend uh, and a ridiculous man who's super funny and uh, just weird and just a weird and awesome dude. I love this guy. And, and so if you want to, you know, if you have any inclination, I really encourage you to start there because it's gonna be hard probably will drop out at some point, whatever, but you'll, you'll be exposed to these ideas, which will be, I think, are uh, foundational understanding how, how the world works. So that would be my second suggestion. Obviously, it's a much higher bar for people, but that one 10, highly recommend is a thing to do. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you so much. I, and I And I really love what you're doing. I think that the push to expose students to mentors who are not too much older than them, but doing something that they want one day to do is just incredibly important. And yeah, I, I, I uh, yeah, really admire the work that you all are doing.